Last week, we, Jono finished off Summer in the Psalms for us, and in two weeks' time, he's going to be taking us into the, into the book of Hebrews, and we're going to be there for a long time, and it'll be very good, and I'm looking forward to it very much. So this, but in between this week and next week, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. And so the, the, the title for the series really is The Believer and the Law. Because that's the heart of what Paul is getting at in this text. And so before I read it, this, this passage is important because it, it helps us see with more clarity the beauty of what Christ has done for us. And it corrects subtle temptations that we might have to commit spiritual adultery ourselves. So Romans chapter 7 verses 1 to 6, let's listen to God's word. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. This is God's Word. So I want to be working through this text with us, and we're going to be focusing primarily in on verse 4, but we're also going to be uh, getting to there in verses 1 to 3. So Paul starts out and he says, Do you not know, brothers... And it might seem like a, like a subtle thing or a, or a small thing. But that word there, brothers, has been used 343 times throughout the Gospels and the book of Acts. 343 times. It's a very common word there. But here we are in Romans, and Paul has only used this once so far. And Paul uses it in, in, chap, in chapter 1, verse 13. He says this. He said, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. When Paul used that term, brothers, he was showing this church, these, these Christians in Rome, how much he wanted to be there with them, how much he, he, he longed to be there, how he wanted to travel from where he was to Rome and spend time with them. He really wanted to do that. And so as we look into this text, despite all of the wondrous things that Paul has already said, in this passage we see brothers. He's wanting them to understand this point that he's about to make in this very text. And so we can, we can look into this knowing that this is an important passage for us to understand. Verse 1, he says, For I am speaking to those who know the law. These people that he's writing to, they understand God's law. And so God's law is, is, is helpfully summarized for us by Jesus in Matthew 
chapter 22 when he says the first like the, the first commandment is to there's two, the two great commandments to love God uh, with all your heart soul mind and strength and then to love your neighbor as yourself God Jesus summarizes the old testament the 10 commandments for us in that very in that very passage so how are we to love God the first four commandments of the Old Testament, of the, of the Ten Commandments, uh, and instruct us and show us how. And then how are we to love neighbor? The last six of those commandments helps us, or shows us how we are to love our neighbor. And Jesus is quoting Old Testament scriptures as he's making that point. And then Paul moves into this illustration here, this, this, this analogy, this example of a married woman who is bound by law to her husband. There's a, there's a binding agreement there. There's a covenant arrangement there that she is bound to. And the only way that she can be free from that, from that, that, from that agreement, the only way that, that either of these two people can be free from that arrangement is by death. Now, there is, there is, Teachings out there that that focus on a, a permanent view of marriage that that would say that that how, that marriage is between a a man and a woman and there is not the only way that you that that divorce can happen or separation can happen between those between the man and the woman is through death. There is no other reason for divorce, and they'll use this text to to say that the problem is is that Paul's point isn't about marriage in terms of like a teaching on it specifically he's employing it as an analogy for us to understand a bigger point he's trying to help us understand how the law relates to us as believers not trying to to teach us how marriage and divorce works so the the essence of the this analogy is this that the that the law of marriage is binding on a married couple while both are alive but if one of the parties to that marriage covenant dies, then the other is freed from that marriage agreement. Hence, the surviving spouse is free to marry again. The question then becomes, who has died? Who has died? Has the law died? <clears throat> and, that's, and that's sometimes where people will go with this. They'll say, well, the law has died, so therefore we're in this new relationship with with Christ, that sometimes it's tempting to look at the Old Testament law like, like, like Moses is this bad medieval king reigning over his people with, with heavy taxes and, and harsh punishments if you break his laws. But then Jesus has now come in as, as a nice king, as a new king who has done away with that, that harsh old king and, and that harsh old laws. And now we have these new nicer laws. But if we look closer into this text, we can see that, that, that Paul hasn't said that the law has died. But he has said that a law, that a death has taken place. And it's important to see that the law hasn't died because Paul is just about to say that the law is very, very good. Listen to what he says in verses 10 through 13. He says, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? 
By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Paul says that the law is good. The law hasn't died. The thing that has happened is that the believer's relationship to the law has changed. He's saying saying that the law hasn't died, but you have died to the law. You have died to the law. How dead are you to the law? You are dead. I remember when I was a kid, up until I was like 12 or something, running around the backyard playing war games with my friends, and you would pretend to shoot each other, and then you would shoot someone, and you'd say, you're dead, and then they would carry on talking, and the quick response was, dead men don't talk. You're dead. How dead are you to the law if you are in Christ? You are dead to the law. But yet there's this, there's this, there's this analogy still happening of, 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 of marriage that, that there's this, this idea of an adulteress here that if she goes and lives with another man while her husband is still alive, you have, she's committing adultery. Now, I would say that we too ourselves are committed, attempted to commit spiritual adultery in some ways. That we have a new relationship with the law, we have a new relationship with Christ, we have died to the law, and yet there are subtle temptations that we all face to come back under the law ourselves. And so while we are not, as believers, we aren't committing adultery with, with the law itself, we are committing adultery with Christ. And so here's, and I'm, here's some ways that I think that we can commit spiritually adultery ourselves. And as I, and as I highlight these, you can probably think of, of many other examples. Here's just three that I thought of. Some ways that we, one way that we commit spiritual adultery is by believing that our, law, our good outweighs our bad. You might have messed up last week or last night. Perhaps you're suffering under guilt and shame of of, of massive failure. And what's one of the the, the quickest temptations that we look for is how to deal with that guilt and shame? Water under the bridge. Let time pass. Don't 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 think too hard on it. Just let some time happen, and and then and then after water is passed under the bridge, look back on that time, and you won't feel. So bad for it. It's a temptation that we we all face when we sin. But what we're doing there is we are denying the the, the the freedom and the readiness with which Christ has to forgive us, and instead we lean on ourselves, we lean on our own methods to try and feel better and, and alleviate our guilt. The cure is that. As, as sure as Christ's blood has been spilt on Calvary, so your sin has been washed away. We do not need time to wash away our sin. We do not need time to alleviate our guilt or to, to quiet our fears and our shame. But just an honesty before God that we have messed up, a, a belief that he will, that he has forgiven us, and a trust. Not a second has to pass before we return to Christ after failure. Another way that we commit spiritual adultery is, I think, 
like a, a, an outward positivity and an insecure triumph. And what I mean by that is someone might ask you on, on Sunday morning as you walk into church after you've had a, a rough week or you're, you're thinking about things that you're struggling with. And so someone might say, how are you? Response, I'm good. Or full of love and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. Or I'm wonderful. Perhaps, or perhaps someone shares with you that they're not doing so well or struggling with sin, or or a difficult situation in life. And the temptation that some people have to to offer those people as a remedy is 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 a superficial superficial answers, superficial Christian platitudes. Like Jesus has plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Someone's struggling and, and going through difficult things in life and, and these these pet answers, Jesus has plans to prosper you and not to not to harm you. Problem is, is that there was given in, in the book of Jeremiah before the the, the the people of Judah are about to go into exile under Babylon and, and Jerusalem is about to come under siege. And so Jeremiah also wrote Lamentations, and one of the scenes that you see in Lamentations is is as, as Jeremiah looks out on Jerusalem under siege by the Babylonians, these, these, these plans to, to prosper you and not to harm you have resulted in the mothers being so hungry that they would eat their own children. That's one of the images that is given. There is, there is a better way than offering superficial answers. Although another superficial answer might be that Jesus works all things for the good of those who love him. It's a truthful answer, but it can be an insensitive one. The same God who works all things for good for, the, for those who love him is also the one that stepped down out of heaven, took on human flesh, and walked in our shoes and experienced our suffering with us. And it's from that point that he can turn the lowest and the hardest points of our life into good. And so while we have no hope of being as, as sensitive, as caring, or understanding as our Savior is with us, we do have a responsibility as God's children to extend that hand of grace to our fellow brothers and sisters while they are suffering. There is no need to just be triumphant or, or, or outwardly positive when Christ him self has stepped down into the truth of the human situation. And so therefore we can both embrace our own trials and we can extend a, a hand of grace and mercy to others as they go through their own. And trusting that Christ will walk through us, with us, through those situations and we with each other. And the temptation to take on that persona could come from an adulterous heart that thinks that an outward show or an outward positivity might somehow give us more favor with God, give us more more favor with God or with others. That the law condemns us. Yet Christ has made a way that we can be free. He has made the way that we can be free, that through him we have died to the law that we do not need to act in the Christian life when Christ himself has embraced the reality of life. Another way that we commit spiritual adultery could be just an outward spirituality or piety. So I think that true spiritual 
True Christian spirituality and true piety is seen when someone clearly, someone sees clearly what God has commanded them to do and how He has enabled them to follow. That we are quick to look to Christ for help and even faster to despair of their own strength in the way that God calls us to. With despair of their own strength to follow in the way that God calls us to. Now, such humility, such readiness to see the goodness of God and how he's commanded us to follow and our lack of ability to do that in our own strength doesn't mean that we have to posit our body language or our tone of voice or, the, or even the language that we use to discuss spiritual matters to appear in a way that's self-depreciating or borderline depressed. Such an outward persona does not mean that you are spiritual, but rather an inward reality of, of seeing what God has called us to do and, and a willingness to follow him. We do not need to put on anything in the Christian life. We can be real. How dead are you to the law? We have no need to try and follow it in different ways or make up new commands for us to follow or to act in a certain way. We can see clearly what God has commanded us to do and then live accordingly. And the temptation to live different from that possibly comes from a, a, a misunderstanding of God's law and a misunderstanding of how we're called to follow it. So how dead are we to the law? D-E-A-D spells dead. You have died to the law through the body of Christ. That's what it says in verse 4. So likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. You've died to the law through the body of Christ. So we're going to look at body of Christ, and then you have died to the law in him. It's clear that Paul means the body of Christ to mean his physical death on the cross in this passage. Romans chapter 8, verse 3 and 4 says this, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Colossians 2 verse 13 and 14. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. These two passages combine to show that God has done something that we could not do, that the death that he died was was what was required to free us from the law. The law as it stood over us required that we obeyed the law, but we were not able to do anything but sin. We were helpless in our state. Listen to, ver- ch- listen to verse 5 of chapter 7. He says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. While we were apart from Christ and alive to the law, we had no ability in and of ourselves to follow the law. We had no strength to follow it. We had no, we had no desire to follow it. In actual fact, being under the law 
before Christ, when we would look at it, when you would look at it, when unbelievers sit, sit under the law, it brings out rebellion. It says that, we, that, that our sinful passions are aroused by the law. That since the fall, humans have had rebellious hearts towards God. But when God made clear his rules, when God made clear his character, when God made clear his, his statutes, it gave something concrete for that human rebellion heart to rebel against. And it made that, the law shows us the clarity of our rebellion. It shows us that, that, that we have no strength in and of ourselves to follow it. We will only rebel against it. That leaves, that leaves us in a hopeless state before God if we're apart from Christ. And perhaps you're not a Christian here, and yet you're interested in what Christians believe. When Jesus came, literally the God who, who made the world and everything in it, he became a man and kept the law that he himself commanded us to keep. And he suffered the punishment for those who broke it, even though he himself was innocent. It's the only way we can be given, be forgiven, that the law demanded obedience, but we were not able to obey it in and of ourselves. And therefore God himself came as a man and, and, and kept it. He obeyed it on our behalf. But he didn't just obey it. He dealt with the punishment that we deserve for not keeping it. He took it upon himself that we were not able to, 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 to alleviate that punishment that we deserve, but Christ himself took the punishment. So now we come to God with no fear of judgment, with no fear of shame, with no fear of hell, because it has been born already and it will not be born upon our shoulders. And so we can rejoice as free people. We can rejoice because we have been forgiven. We cannot do good things to be made right with God. Being a good person will not outdo the wrong things that we have done. Trusting Christ as your Lord and Savior is the only way you can be forgiven and set free from the law which presently condemns you. We have died to the law through the body of Christ, that through Christ's death we can be free from the law because he himself has kept it. We've died to the law in terms of its legal demand and held a legal demand over us, but Christ has kept it on our behalf. But how can we know for sure that we have been forgiven? How can we know for sure that the law no longer stands over us? How can we know for sure that we have died to the law? That our relationship with the law has changed because we have a new relationship with Christ. Romans chapter 6 verse 3, I want to point us to, to baptism here. Paul says this in, in 6 verse 3. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? If you have been baptized, it implies that you've understood the message of the gospel. You've repented of your sin and rebellion towards God, and you have believed that Jesus Christ is the only hope and source of your salvation. 
Baptism is a step of obedience that symbolizes this before God and before the church that, that of the spiritual reality that has happened. By going down into the waters, you are identifying with Christ's death. The amount of your faith does not determine how dead to the law you are, how much you believe or, or with the greatness of, your, of feeling that you think you believe, that does, not, that does not determine how dead to the law you are. If you have trusted Christ and you see him as the only source of your salvation, then you have been freed from the law and its legal demand. What's the reason for such a step of obedience? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism, in verse 4 of chapter 6. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, our God is not the God of the dead only. We are not called only to die to the law. In, in becoming believers, in being converted, we have, that is not the only thing that has happened. We are also called to live. We, have died, we die to the law in order to walk in newness of life. Verse 4 of, of chapter 7 says that you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. You've died to the law so that you may belong to Christ, so that you may belong to him. Not only just Christ who has died, but to him who has been raised from the dead in order to produce fruit for God. So the reason that we have died to the law is so that we may belong to Christ, to him who has been raised from the dead. Christ died on our behalf and our dying to the demands of the law in him is very good news. That we can, we can walk out of here today knowing that, that Christ has done something that we could not do. We can live as freed people because we are freed people. Christ has set us free from the law and its legal demand by keeping it on our behalf. But that is not where the Christian life stops. But it is where I'll be stopping today. And then next week we're going to be focusing more on life. What does it mean to belong to him, living to him, living for him? So let's pray as we as we close this time.